I get to wrap up our study in the book of Esther. And it has been a journey. It has been amazing. It has been insightful and challenging and convicting and all of those things, right? Those of you that have been part of our study. And we have discovered many, many things about the book of Esther that maybe a lot of us didn't know. And I know that I've just been really greatly challenged. The book of Esther is about a young Jewish orphaned woman who became the queen of Persia. Incredible. But more so, the book of Esther is not about Esther. It's about an almighty, sovereign God who is always working, always fulfilling his great plan and purpose for people, for nations. The book of Esther also has some great drama in it because it's got a villain. Most good stories have a villain, right? Haman was a world-class villain. I'll just say that. And as if those of you that were with us last week know that after Haman had persuaded King Xerxes, the king of Persia, to send forth an edict that all Jews would be annihilated, would be killed, Haman was excited. He especially hated one Jew. His name is Mordecai. He happened to be Esther's older cousin, almost functioning like a father to her. And um, Mordecai refused to bow to Haman, the second most powerful man in the Persian kingdom. Mordecai and, and Esther convinced King Xerxes that Haman was the villain. He was the bad guy. And as we saw last week together, chapter six and seven, Haman was executed. Good part of the story, but not the end of the story. When the villain dies, that's a good part of the story, but it's not the end of the story because what we're gonna see this morning in chapters eight and nine, what we're gonna see is the ultimate purpose of the book of Esther and the ultimate miracle and blessing that God performed. So if you have your Bible, Esther chapter eight, that's our passage this morning. We'll have the verses up on the screen as well. What's so fascinating to me as you study what different commentators and scholars have to say about the book of Esther is it's, they refer to what has happened in these last final chapters as the great reversal <laughs> It's almost like everything that Haman thought he had and possessed now goes to Mordecai. And it's pretty incredible. Verse 1, Esther chapter 8. That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. Again, some of the irony in this beautiful story, this biblical account, is all that Haman thought he had is not only gone and he's dead, but now it's given to Mordecai. Incredible. But that's not full justice yet. 
All the wrongs have not been righted yet. So let's continue verse three. So Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. Then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther and she arose and she stood before him. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor and thinks it the right thing to do, if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? You see, the death of Haman was not the ultimate by any means. The greater need, the greater issue is a potential elimination of the entire Jewish race. And so she pleads, she begs. In fact, what we see in Esther is desperation. Desperation is an admission of hopelessness. I want to talk about desperation for a moment. Some of you will be able to relate to what I'm going to say because I am one of those people that is not at all hardwired for desperation. (laughs) I was raised, many of you were, and so much of my default of my life is to be strong and to be competent. Desperation is not something I want to gravitate toward ever. Many of us are not hardwired for desperation. We would rather suffer than ask for help. We would rather emotionally implode than admit our deep need. We believe that being desperate and admitting it is the ultimate sign of weakness. And we were told may be raised to never be weak. We need to be able to understand that there are times we can't fix things. (laughs) There are times we can't make it better. There are times we can't solve the problem. There are times that we can no longer just suck it up and keep going and keep going and keep going. That can be my normal. Maybe that's your normal as well. And I am convinced that there are times that God says no more. You need to acknowledge you're desperate. I wonder if you're in that place, maybe even in that season right now. You know, I don't know about you, but I can be one who would choke on the words, maybe even gag on the words. I don't know what to do. I really need help. I'm desperate. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Desperation is an admission of helplessness. And sometimes it is exactly where God wants you and me to live for a while. He does. And it can be really miserable to live there because we have to admit we can't do it ourselves. Sometimes when we get to this point, 
we can only turn to one person. <laughs> His name is the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? He's it. He's it. And the Lord Jesus Christ reminds us that, our, that his power is made perfect in our, say it with me, weakness. Many of you know that verse. His power is made perfect in our weakness. It is. I told, I told one of my daughters, I was with one of my daughters recently, and I said, I'm still really working in my life for my life to catch up with my theology. <laughs> I know more than I live because I've been a student of the Bible for a long time. My power, Jesus says, is made perfect in your weakness, in your desperation, in your times where you cannot fix it. You cannot just suck it up. You can't just be strong and act like you're fine. No, my power is made perfect in your weakness. And I believe that the Lord is just teaching me part of my journey is to, is to not only acknowledge that, but to live that. Jesus is the one we turn to. We also have this thing called Stephen Ministry. <laughs> and there are people in our church, you just saw a group of them, who can be, in essence, kind of the, the presence of Jesus, the loving, caring listening presence of Jesus. Do you know what it's like to be desperate? Do you know what it's like to admit you're desperate? Some of us maybe don't take that next step very well. What I see in Esther is unless God does it, it will fail miserably. That's what I see in her. And I think, my friends, that's exactly the time that God often responds. Because who gets glory then? You or him? It's him who gets the glory. You know, as I was thinking about this and thinking about this appeal of Esther to Xerxes about sparing her people, sparing the Jews, overturning an edict, which in the Medo-Persian Empire was essentially impossible is she knew that only God could do this, I think, because of what she said back in chapter four. Do you remember when Mordecai was mourning and Esther wanted to know what was wrong, what was going on? And he came back and he said, it's the edict. It's the annihilation of all our people. And then Mordecai quite pointedly said to her, what queen Esther are you going to do about it? Look at what God has done. Look at where God has placed you. What are you going to do? Quote, for such a time as this. Do you know what Esther did? Some of you remember this. Look with me at verse 15. This will be up on the screen. Esther chapter 4, verse 15. Then Esther sent... This reply to Mordecai, go gather together all the Jews who are, in, who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Wow. 
Esther in her desperation called on the Jews, who, by the way, worship Jehovah God, right? To fast for three days. My understanding of fasting in scripture is that it's almost always tied to prayer. And I'm talking about a desperation kind of prayer, a crying out to God, a focused fervency of prayer. That's what fasting seems to be tied to in scripture. It's a time of humility. It's a time of getting on your face before God. It's a time of crying out to him. And my question to me, to us, is when was the last time we did that? That's what desperate people do. You know, I was thinking about this and my mind went to the book of Nehemiah. I love the book of Nehemiah. And some of you know that book as well. And in the first chapter, we see Nehemiah's desperation too. Nehemiah was back in Babylon. He was the cupbearer to the king, whose name, by the way, was Artaxerxes. Most believe the son of Xerxes, King Xerxes, and or related in some way. And word came to Nehemiah that the walls around Jerusalem, which were being rebuilt, were completely demolished and destroyed. Listen to verse 3 of Nehemiah 1. It says, they, they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. Nehemiah writes, when I heard these things, I sat down and I wept for some days. I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Does that sound like desperation? That's what he did. Four months passed. Chapter two, verse one is four months later. I think he was still fasting and mourning and weeping and crying out to God. Here's what happens. Nehemiah two, verse one. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and I gave it to the king. It had not, I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid. Why? Because you don't do that in the king's presence. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed with fire? Doesn't that sound like Esther to you? It does to me. And guess what the prayer and mourning and fasting produced something in the pagan king's heart because he says what is it that you want and everything was provided here's my point my friends there's something about being desperate and crying out to God in a way that sounds different than when you bow and for 20 seconds pray for your meal There's something powerful about that. I don't think we have to coerce God. I don't. But there's something about fervency and prayer that flows out of our hearts and our lives when we are desperate. That in some way seems in scripture to move God in powerful ways. And he acts 
in ways that sometimes we know it's only him. It's only him. Where do you go, my brother and sister, when you're desperate? Where do you go? I am deeply convicted by that. And I am challenged. I think the Lord, one of the things about where I am in my journey with Jesus now is I am learning this. To be desperate. And to say, only you, Jesus, can do it. I am convinced that there are some of you here this morning who are in that place. And you've not been ready to say, I'm desperate. Even to Jesus. Maybe that's exactly what he wants you to do today, my my dear friend. Cry out to him. The passage continues. Verse 7. King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai, the Jew, because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given this estate to Esther and have impaled him on the pole he set up. Now write another decree in the king's name in behalf of the Jews as seems best to you and seal it with the king's signet ring for no document written in the king's name and sealed with the ring will be revoked. (laughs) Xerxes is saying, I'll overturn the edict. I'm going to do it. And apparently, kings could do that, I guess, because he did. Jump to verse 11 with me. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and their children, and to plunder the property of their enemies. The day appointed for the Jews to do this in all the provinces of King Xerxes was the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. And some of you that have been with us in this study say, you know, that sounds kind of familiar. It should. Because that was the day dedicated, committed, commissioned to kill all the Jews. This is not a random date. This was the date set for Haman, that Haman set to annihilate the Jews. And essentially essentially what is being said is that not only will that be overturned, but all of the Jews can defend themselves. All of the Jews can fight back. If you are being attacked, you fight back, is what the edict included. Verse 15, when Mordecai left the king's presence, he was wearing the royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold and a purple robe of fine linen. And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration for the Jews. It was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor in every province and every city to which the edict of the king came. There was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebration. And many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. From annihilation, from desperation, to celebration. (laughs) That's what I see. This is so awesome. It's only talking about celebration. This to them was a miracle of deliverance. God had delivered their people. This is truly a miracle. You know, it's interesting When you hear about these edicts that cannot be revoked, irrevocable edicts, 
it seems as though Xerxes saying, I am going to overturn this. I'm going to change this. And essentially, he gave the signet ring, the authorization power of the king to Mordecai, who rewrote the edict. That's exactly what's happening here. You know, I, I thought about this, and I mean, these verses are so beautiful about how they rejoiced and celebrated. Let me ask you a question. Are you good at celebrating? Are you good at celebrating? I asked myself that question. Um, eh, about some things. You know, if the biggest thing I celebrate is when the uh, athletic teams I root for win championships, that's pretty lame. <laughs> it really is. Um, let me talk about celebration. Let me, let me share with you something. That has, some of you know that I was in higher ed for 16 years. You know, we were trained to be deeply critical thinkers. <laughs> you know what that means? We just kind of dissect everything and over-evaluate everything and debrief about everything. And I have a feeling that some of you in the orthopedic industry have kind of do that kind of thing too. Is that fair? Critical thinking. It's supposed to mean deeply discerning and evaluative, but basically what it often means is being really critical, right? So I was thinking about this, celebrate. Why don't we celebrate? I wonder if a lot of Christians think it's not godly to celebrate. Is that part of the issue? I don't know. Don't be too happy. Really? I see this. This is so beautiful um, how they celebrate it. But here's what happens. Often things will happen, maybe things you're a part of, whatever they might be. Say that you do programs and you do events or whatever else it is you might be involved in. And before everybody's even gone, we're going to start debriefing, okay? We're going to start our checklist of everything that needs to be done better next time. Any of you relate to what I'm saying? I know you do. It's kind of the American way. You can celebrate for 30 seconds, then we're going to debrief, okay? Seriously? It can be really deflating. You know, some of us want to say, can we celebrate a little bit? Can we just be grateful? Can we be thankful? Can we talk about, you know, the things that went well? Can we, how about if we uh, congratulate God? Can we start there? You know, can we talk about the goodness and the grace and the positive for a while before we dissect and debrief? Can we do that? God's people celebrated. I'm just so struck as, you know, some of you are students of the Old Testament too. They had major feasts and festivals multiple times a year that lasted week or weeks in some cases because God wanted them to celebrate. And when that celebration is worship, when that celebration is giving him credit and glory, That is one of the greatest things we'll do. Guess what? We're going to be doing that for all eternity. Let's start practicing it now better, okay? You know, I read my Bible in the book of Revelation, chapter 19. There's this thing called the marriage supper of the lamb. That sounds like a lamb. That sounds like a huge party to me. It does. Are you good at celebrating? Let me talk about, 
you know, I obviously, because I talked about my grandkids, I am the father of two adult daughters, and I have two son-in-laws as well. My daughters, both in their 30s, when they get reminiscing about their growing up years and they talk about, you know, our life together as we were, Kathy and I were raising them, they don't talk about their awesome math test. (laughs) They talk about Christmas. They talk about Thanksgiving. They talk about Easter. They talk about incredible birthdays. They talk about the celebrations, the times where we had fun and we rejoiced. And my friends, when they're tied to these wonderful holidays, let's not talk about presents first. Let's talk about the King of Kings born 2,000 years ago who became flesh. Let's talk about that. And what I have so found is it's the celebrations of life to me are the punctuation marks of life. They are the happiest emojis of life. Because when you talk to somebody, and this is true of us, but again, I get to talk to my adult daughters, is what do you remember? What was the best? It was our celebrations. Which ultimately point to the goodness and grace of God. Make that part of your family culture. Make that part of your family culture. You know what a good thing to do when you really want to celebrate together? You say, everybody, turn off your phone and put it down. You might get, a, you got, might get mutiny first, but we're going to celebrate. We're not going to be, you know, we're going to celebrate together. I so encourage you. Have incredibly special times, not just for your family, though they're at the top of the list for me, that are fun, but more than fun, that help us reflect on the goodness, the goodness of our God. Amen? Let's do it. Let's do it passionately. I see that God's people, the nation of Israel, seem to understand that well. Maybe the church doesn't as well passage goes on. And what we see, this is so amazing. I love this, is that they decide to create a holiday, a feast, a festival called Purim or Purim, P-U-R-I-M, to commemorate. It's a commemoration of remembering. I'm calling it the legacy of remembering they established a brand new holiday to commemorate how God spared them from annihilation. And the passage talks about it in chapter 9, verse 20. We read this. Mordecai recorded these events and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, near and far, to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month, the time when the Jews got relief from the enemies. And as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy, their mourning into a day of celebration, he wrote them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Purim was a festival of remembrance. Remember. 
God wants his people to be about remembering Passover. Remembering the falling of the walls of Jericho. (laughs) Remembering the parting of the Red Sea. You know, there are songs, there are psalms that rehearse these incredible events of God that demonstrate his power and his love for his people. Remember, remember. God knows we forget. God God knows (laughs) that he was with us and he took us through a valley time two or three years ago and now we're entering into a new one and we freak out, right? And he wants to say, remember? Remember I was with you? Remember, I walked through that with you. Remember how much you grew. Remember, you learned to cry out in desperation to me during those times, and I showed up. Remember, I love that because we so easily forget how God stepped in, and He stepped in, and He demonstrated He was with us. Commemorate. Verse 28, these days should be remembered and observed in every generation by every family and in every province, in every city. And these days of Purim should never fail to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of these days die out among our descendants. Remember, remember his faithfulness to you, to our people. Pass it down from generation to generation to generation. You know, that's why godly traditions in a family can be legacies for a family. Maybe you enjoy some that your grandparents, your great-grandparents, who knows? Maybe you need to start some. Godly legacies of remembrance. The biggest commemoration that the church has is the one where Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Are you building in traditions, godly traditions into your home, into your life? so that you will remember the goodness of God. Well, most of us like happy endings to stories, right? You ever go to a movie and the the end's like so tragic and you're like, I want my money back. I wanted a happy ending, okay? Think about it. Disney has made billions of dollars off of happily ever after. Can I tell you what's better than happily ever after? God is greatly glorified. That's so much better. Happily ever after just means the good guys won, the good girls won. So much better is God was greatly glorified. That's what we want. The hero of the book of Esther was not Esther. The hero of the book of Esther is God. It's him. 
God orchestrated all of this to fulfill his plan and his purpose and to save his people from annihilation. He used imperfect people like Esther and Mordecai, just like he will use imperfect people like us to fulfill that purpose. He gets the glory. He always gets the glory. I'm going to close in prayer. And after I pray, I'm going to ask some of our elders and prayer team if they're here. This morning, I'm wondering if as a few of us gather here in the front, if we can pray for you and with you. And if we can pray because you're in a state of incredible hardship and you're willing to say, you know, I'm really desperate. Something's going on and I haven't even asked anybody to pray for me. Would you pray for me? I'm in a really hard place. We'd love to. Some of you might say, you know, God's been so good to me. I haven't even verbalized. I just before another person want to say, I praise God. I thank God for his goodness in my life. We're here. I love to hear that. I'll rejoice with you. We will rejoice with you. Let's pray together. Thanks, Father. For this incredible book, it's been a journey. It's been a joy to walk through it, to learn, to see how you use very imperfect people, and to see how ultimately, God, you are the one who gets the glory. You are the one who makes your plan and purpose work to its fulfillment. We praise you for that. And Lord, I pray for my brothers, my dear sisters here today, if they're in a a season of incredibly hard times, that they would understand they need to cry out to you. And we need to acknowledge and even humble ourselves to be desperate. Lord, help us to celebrate Help us to glorify you. Help us to build within our lives and our families traditions that point and remind us you are incredibly faithful. Thank you for that reminder. Bless us this week. Help us to be a light in this needy world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.